Hi, everyone. Eve Harrow, Director of Tourism and Community Development for Winneswell Fund, who's once again sponsoring this evening's webinar. Hope you're all well if you celebrated Passover, Easter, if you're still in the middle of Ramadan, uh, because we have a very interesting next hour for you. Um, for those of you who've been following us over the last couple of years, so you know that when it comes to community development and security, One Israel Fund has not missed a beat. And now that the skies are open and hopefully the pandemic is over, we're looking forward to you coming to Israel to seeing what we've been doing, to joining us in our project. And now that the mask mandate is off in Israel, I'm hoping to restart our very popular bus trips uh, around Judea and Samaria and the Gaza envelope so you can see what we've been doing, what the people have been doing, and how amazing the heartland of our country is. I am very happy this evening to introduce to you Yisrael Medad, also known as Winky, a well-known lecturer of Zionist history, expert in revisionism, and a frequent commentator on public and media affairs. Born in New York, graduated from Yeshiva University, and earned an MA in political science from Hebrew University. Winky and his wife made Aliyah in 1970 and have raised five children in Shiloh since 1981. Winky was parliamentary aide to Geula Cohen for over a decade and also some other famous people, which maybe we'll discuss if we have time. In 1995, he became director of Israel's Media Watch and in 2000 joined the newly created Menachem Begin Heritage Center in Jerusalem. He officially retired, but this is not somebody who really ever retires. And he's now a research fellow uh, since 2017. And I just have to say on a personal note that if there is one person who I would call a mentor, in many of the things that I have done in the last quite a few decades, it would be Israel Medad. So Winky, thank you so much for joining us tonight on One Israel Funds webinar tonight, of course, being April 25th, 2022. It's hard to get all straight. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much for the introduction. All right, so I wanted to, I wanted to actually educate our listeners a little bit about somebody um, and an ideology that I think people hear a lot about revisionism and John Jabotinsky, um, and who I think is maybe more relevant today to know about than, than for a long time. And I could think of no one better, of course, than you. So maybe at, at, before we start, give a little bit of a kind of an encapsulated short version of who Jabotinsky was and what like the main planks of his ideology were. Jabotinsky was born in Russia, in Odessa, in what is now the Ukraine, then known as South Russia, in 1880, and he died in New York in 1940. So we're talking about 60 years of activity. He was brilliant, intelligent, spoke and wrote, you know, approximately a dozen languages. Um, he didn't graduate high school. He left to be a journalist first in Switzerland and then in Italy. And then he came back and became involved in the Zionist movement uh, just prior to the Kishinev pogrom. His first activity was buying illegally guns, the Jewish self-defense. Uh, he later became a propagandist uh, for Zionism throughout uh, Turkey, uh, North Africa, and Russia. And in 1915-16, decided to raise the Jewish Legion after disagreeing with the idea of the Zion Mule Corps because he wanted a Jewish fighting force, a, a battle uh, uh, unit. He became part of the Balfour Declaration success. 
was involved in the defense of Jerusalem in the first political Arab riots against Zionism in 1920, just 102 years ago, broke with Weizmann and eventually set up what we now know as the revisionist movement, which was much more, shall we say, militant, uh, spoke about uh, a Jewish state openly and not about a Jewish commonwealth, spoke about the historic land of Israel on both sides of the Jordan River, eventually became the uh, ideal of a father figure, shall I say, both for illegal immigration from 1932 on, and then eventually the Irgun underground. He was kicked out, wasn't kicked out. He wasn't allowed to return to Mandate Palestine after the end of 1929. And uh, as I said, he died in Camp Beitar in New York in the summer of 1940, trying to raise once again a Jewish armed force to fight against Hitler and the Nazis in Europe. Mm -hmm. So how does Menachem Begin become connected with him? Menachem Begin uh, had left Hashomer Hatzair because it was not religious. His father was not happy with it. And two years later, uh, Jabotinsky came along to Brisk, which is just across the border from Poland in Belarus today. And he was uh, enamored with him, captured by his brilliance, joined Beitar and became basically uh, one of Jabotinsky's children, as Daniel Heller uh, entitled his book on Beitar in Poland in the 1930s. And uh, in fact, Jabotinsky was uh, one of his best men at his wedding in March of 19, uh, uh, 1939. And he, Begin, always viewed himself, and people did view him as Jabotinsky's leading uh, pupil, leading follower, disciple, mm -hmm. disciple, and uh, translated many of Jabotinsky's ideas in social welfare and other issues uh, uh, into his political program in the Hayrut movement uh, during the 50s and 60s, and then when he became prime minister in 1977. So this week, we're going to be commemorating uh, Yom HaShoah, the Memorial Day for the Holocaust. And when I take people to Mount Herzl, where Jabotinsky was eventually reinterred uh, from New York, I read uh, something that he wrote. I mean, he, he dies in 1940, but he foresaw the Holocaust. He, uh, he realized what was going to happen to European Jewry. I would imagine that's part of why he was so adamant about having a fighting force for the Jews so that we could protect ourselves, if only. Um, and of course, Menachem Begin lives for many more years and becomes Israel's prime minister in 1977. So there are many who will connect today's Likud party with, of course, Begin, with Jabotinsky, with the revisionist ideology. Uh, is, there, is there a direct line there? Would you say that the ideology, if it were, or what drives the Likud is a direct descendant, if you will, of Jabotinsky and the revisionist idea? Well, almost, shall we say. I mean, the Likud and before that, the Chibut movement always viewed Jabotinsky as uh, the picture on the wall, right? Everybody had to know who he was and, 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 and what he championed. Mm -hmm. However, as the years went by, not everybody read 
as much as possible that they could of Jebediah. So some of the things that he had said in a certain time frame were perhaps interpreted differently and things that he intended to be a permanent ideological or a political principle or a guideline uh, were not followed through. And I'll give mm -hmm. you one example that has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. <laughs> uh, Jabotinsky was not particularly religious or shall we say observant. People then think, of course, that he grew up as a complete assimilationist, which was not true. His mother was a daughter of a Hasidic family. He knew Yiddish from youth. He, he recited Kaddish for his father at the, uh, at the annual yard sale. Uh, mm -hmm. However, he was simply basically an unbeliever. Begin, of course, was much more uh, imbued in the religious background. Traditions, so, right. And sometimes you will get a different interpretation as if Jabotinsky was almost a rabbi's son rather than a uh, 19th century liberal uh, thinker uh, who could also look very uh, askance at religious behavior, uh, for example. He ran into trouble with Rabbi Cook at the beginning of the mandate because he demanded that women have the right to vote in the early years of the Yeshuv. Not too many people perhaps know that women did not have the right to vote early on, and Rabbi Cook was very much against it. Uh, at one point, in fact, Jabotinsky declared he is, in 19, I think it was 1928, he is not paying dues to the municipality of Jerusalem until they allow women the right to vote. So in many ways, he was ahead of his time. You know, my first um, contact, as it were, with Jabotinsky was actually through one of his novels, I picked up the book Samson that he wrote many, many, many years ago. Uh, you know, obviously a novel, but based on the biblical story of the uh, of the Samson the judge, and you you can really see his his love of and his understanding for the Bible, which I think a lot of the founding fathers in Israel were like that. They were raised perhaps in religious families, but they no longer kept the traditions, but they were still very much steeped in the biblical stories, and felt the connection to the land of Israel if not through Jewish traditions, then through the Bible and through the people that had been here before. And uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it, was very, it was very interesting to kind of meet him through that way. But one of the um, things that surprised me when I was reading really about how he felt that Israel should run, and of course, Israel doesn't run that way. Israel has changed over the years, but Israel started off in a very socialist way. Everyone's familiar with the kibbutzim and economically it was different. The way he treated the Arabs, um, you know, there, there is a sense, I think, that many people have that those the people on the right, and we can put Jabotinsky there, um, were racist and didn't like Arabs. And the people on the left, while they're chewing on their granola bars, are busy dialing the phone and calling their best Arab friend. And if you really look into the last few decades, you'll see that, that it's quite, quite far from the truth. And that one of Jabotinsky's ideas, if I'm not mistaken, was that while that each ethnicity, right, each group here should be able to express itself, but the Jews, since it's our homeland, would be the premier one. However, while there would be a Jewish prime minister, the deputy prime minister would of necessity be an Arab. Is that, was that, am I portraying part of what he said? And obviously, you know, please elaborate on that in terms of how he thought that what he hoped would become the Jewish state. Of course, he didn't live to see the birth of, of the Jewish state. Um, how it would look and how it would be run? Well, let's 
let's give the background to that so we know where he's coming from. Jabotinsky, as I mentioned in the introduction, was a product of uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, Russia and Europe. And the, the dominant force in Europe, besides the Russian Empire, which he was living, was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And a lot of, of the political thinkers in that empire tried to justify the ability of the empire to rule by allowing the peoples, the various peoples, uh, as much uh, cultural, religious, uh, linguistic, uh, autonomy as possible, uh, similar to what we learned about, for example, by the Romans, uh, uh, even in, in the history of Eretz Israel, by earlier on, allowing us to keep the temple until things got out of hand, okay? And so this was his background. And in trying to find room for Jews in the Russian Empire early on, Jabotinsky adopted this type of approach. And then tried to say that once we have peace with the Arabs, uh, and we'll probably touch on a little bit later when he wrote his very famous uh, Iron Wall article about what peace yes, is. Yes, I would definitely once, like to. Right. Once that fits in, then we can do as much as possible for the Arabs to make them feel at home if we have a Jewish majority and a Jewish state, which would also mean uh, uh, Muslim education, Arabic language, and the possibility of having an Arab as a deputy by, by uh, vice uh, president or as a, as a deputy prime minister, whatever it is. There was Jabotinsky was open to allowing the loyal citizen to be as much as possible a part of the state while keeping his specific ethnic community identity to himself, which is. Uh, uh, not in the, in the foreseeable future that I can see in Israel possible because of the continuing violence and, and anti-Zionism that still exists uh, too often and too much in parts of the Arab society. Mm -hmm. but, but he read, it seems to me that he read more correctly or more realistically what the feelings were going to be of the Arabs of having a Jewish state here. It's something that we're dealing with now, that they're not going to accept us. And that, that almost patronizing view, this is me talking, of the last 20 or 30 years, that Oslo view that if you just give them, you know, good economy and good jobs, and then they, they'll leave aside the idea that, that a Jewish entity is abomination in the middle of Dar al Islam. And he, 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 he seemed from his writings to have gotten that, to have understood that, respected it, seen where they're coming from but also felt that it was paramount that we have a, a Jewish state here. Um, and again, you know, as you just said, coming, you know, understanding that they would have their needs and, and respecting them and their religion, but not allowing them to have the power. And so how does the, how does the essay, The Iron Wall, which is made perhaps the most famous of all of them. And if anybody who's listening, by the way, if you can't find a copy of it, I really highly suggest that you read it. You can write to me, Eve, at winnesofund.org, and I'm happy to send you a copy in English, because it's definitely worth understanding. It's, it's going to bother you in the sense that it, it, it talks about colonialism, you know, something that would be very politically incorrect to talk about today. But, but he speaks pretty openly about that, that we are, we're going to come as some kind of colonial power. How, how do you read this, Winky? How do you interpret what he wrote? 
Well, first of all, uh, Jabotinsky was very straightforward. And he Absolutely. said right out, I do not expect the Arabs to love us. Uh, they live here. And all of a sudden, uh, uh, people come and reclaim their land. However, he was very much committed to the justice of our cause. And therefore, he said, uh, he used the phrase between uh, those who were hungry and those who were starving and those are satiated. And he said the Arabs have multiple states. And he was talking, of course, in the early 1920s, he listed about six or seven different states. Now, of course, we have about 20 four or 25, okay? And he said, all the Jews are asking for is one small state. And that one small state is gonna be the Jewish majority who's gonna set the tone for everything. And we'll try to be as democratic and empathetic uh, as possible to their, to their needs. However, and this is where the iron wall comes into, he says, we, have, we cannot make peace, we cannot come to some sort of understanding until the Arabs realize they will not be able to break through our defenses, whether they are physical defenses, whether they're cultural defenses, whether they're identity uh, uh, defenses. And that's where he got in trouble. I understood part of your question. He, for example, was dead set against the binationalists. And he was also very much in the opposition to Weizmann, calling them peacemongers, chasing after peace when there is none. And in that okay. position, you're going to lose more than gain in negotiating with the Arabs, because they will always hold out hope that either you will break in a psychological or a spiritual or, or some sort of other uh, mental uh, defense that you have, and that will enable the Arabs also to break through the physical defenses that you have set up, whether they're economic, whether they're security or, or, or otherwise. And so he was very, very harsh in criticizing Zionists who felt that all you had to do was to be nice, uh, give them some money or to allow them economic advantages without demanding of them recognition of what Zionism really is all about. Like, has anything changed in the last 80 years? You know, this is a conversation that we could have with him today. I mean, and I would, he might even say to some degree, I told you so, if you looked at what's happening in Israel today. Absolutely, which is uh, probably one of the reasons you and I are discussing the issue right now. Exactly. And why I believe he's very much relevant. A lot of people look at people who lived 100 or 200 years ago and say, okay, they, they wrote a nice epigram, you know, mm -hmm. a two-liner that you could quote or a couple of quotes from Churchill or something like that. But I find it exciting, intellectually and otherwise, uh, to read a, a good couple of paragraphs out of Jefferson's and see how he develops his thinking and his logic and reason on, on an issue, whether it's political, whether it's literary, whether it's economic, uh, the many issues he managed to touch, which, of course, for me, is, 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 as I said, not only exciting, but challenging, because he, he dealt with uh, a plethora of, of issues that you wouldn't think, you know, people look at Ben-Gurion, they say, okay, he was a, uh, a statesman, he was a politician, he raised sheep in, in stable care, and he read Tanakh, and, uh, you know, it was, and that's about it. I mean, you know, 
Jabotinsky was a poet. He was a novelist. He uh, was a journalist. Uh, he was a politician. He was an economic uh, major. Uh, all sorts of things. And uh, this aspect that we're discussing now is very important, but it's only one side of the Jabotinsky personality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that he was known for also is, of course, saying that Israel should be on both sides of the Jordan, right? Uh, the, on both banks of the river. Although I've been reading that there are some people who think that he, he staked out that maximalistic position more on the lines of that Talmudic story, right? Of the two students who find a piece of cloth. It's a famous story. And and if they, they go to the rabbi who says, we'll just divide it in between the two of you. And that's what you'll do if you both demand the whole thing. But one of them said, if one of them says, no, I just want half, he's going to end up with a quarter because then you're not even discussing one half. It's going to the other guy. You're only discussing the half that he wants part of. And therefore, you're only going to get up with a quarter. And that perhaps he, he only spoke about both sides of the Jordan because he was really staking out that position, hoping to get even something to the to the west of it, um, what do you? What's your feeling on that? Well, um, first of all, a little story. A lot of people couldn't figure out where Jabotinsky, the so-called secular, non-observant Jew, got that example. Mm -hmm. And uh, the story goes uh, that he was at a uh, yard site. Uh, prayer for his father, and for those who know, usually between the afternoon prayer, the mincha prayer, and the evening prayer, there's like a little bit of a break, 15, 20, 30 minutes, depending on, on the congregation, and the rabbi usually gives a little talk in between to keep people busy, and Jabotinsky told his biographer, the rabbi talked about that Talmudic story, so that's where I took it from. Mm -hmm. And people doubted it. They said Jabotinsky in synagogue, Talmud, four years ago, they discovered Masechet, the, the tractate of Baba Metzia, where that rabbinical discussion takes place with Jabotinsky's signature and a wow. few notes that he'd written in the, the Gemara, in the Talmud itself. So that's mm -hmm. just a little bit of a story. But uh, the issue. Actually, Jabotinsky wasn't a maximalist. Everybody in the Zionist movement up until the mid-20s was a maximalist. The Zionist Congress of 1923, after the British, um, shall I say, divorced the Zionist movement from Transjordan, cutting it off for settlement, uh, uh, declared that Eretz Yisrael on both banks of the Jordan is one political, economic, spiritual homeland. It was only later on that, that Jabotinsky's insistence on this enabled people to call him extreme. Mm -hmm. uh, because by that time, of course, Abdullah was in place and Transjordan and all sorts of things like that. But uh, the last word on this is in my readings of Jabotinsky, many times he says, People are part of their homeland. People who grew up in a cold climate have a different type of attitude, different type of personality than those who live in the hot. And to him, he said, we have to have all of Eretz Israel be as Jewish as we can. 
we have to have the valleys and the mountains and the lakes and, and the fields. And that way we can be who we are. So for him to give up on the land of Gilad or, or Ruvain and Manasseh, for him that was being less than a Jew because it was taken away from your cultural, historical identity. So you don't think it was a tactical move just to, so we would end up with something. You think he really believed that we should be there as well, based Absolutely. on what you know of his personality? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. From the beginning to the end, uh, he was very firm on that, not as a position, but as a principle. Mm -hmm. You know, it, during the, the days leading up to Israel's War of Independence, and of course, next week we have both Yom HaZikaron, Israel's Memorial Day, and Yom Ha'atzmaut, the appreciation of those who sacrifice themselves for the state and uh, Israel's much beloved uh, Independence Day. But in, in the days leading up to that, there was a very real possibility of civil war between the different groups, loosely the Haganah, the Etzel, the Irgun, of course, the Haganah's Ben-Gurion. The other groups are more following uh, Jabotinsky and, of course, Begin. And there's a, there's a terrible incident of the Altalena. Well, maybe you want to talk about that and and how and how Begin reacts to that day and and how things might have been different if he had reacted differently. Well, Eve, Eve, you're re referring to an incident that happened in June of 1948. What happened was uh, the Irgun had an extreme, uh, well-oiled operation in Europe in about. A half a dozen countries with the base in France. They were collecting arms and ammunition from battlefields and buying it from people who had it. And uh, it wasn't sure at that time whether the state would be created. For those who know, it was only in the week leading up to May 15th that the final decision was taken and the vote was like six to three or something like that. Uh, and so uh, early on, the Irgun group in America bought a ship, renamed it Altalena, which was Jabotinsky's literary nom de plume in Russian, uh, in Italian, actually, and uh, transferred it to France. They offered it to the Irgun for purchase in sharing to bring over armaments. The Haganah refused. And at the uh, time of the first uh, truce, shall we say, the first uh, ceasefire in June, they decided without letting Menachem Begin know to send the ship. So the ship came with it armed and Ben-Gurion agreed to have it land at a Mapai Moshav near Netanya. Everything was agreed. In the last moment, everything broke apart. The version of, of course, of Begin and most of the historians that Ben-Gurion simply uh, reneged on the agreement in terms of how many uh, arms or percentage of how many arms would go to the Irgun and how many would go to the IDF. And uh, since Begin had no contact, remember in those days we didn't have cell phones, okay? So he simply, he was on the ship, so he picked up anchor and sailed off down the coast to Tel Aviv. And that's when Ben-Gurion basically gave the order to fire on the ship. and. Uh, during several hours, begging halted as much as possible any sort of firing going on in the end. 
One of the shells hit the uh, the deck. The oil went ablaze. Everybody was afraid the ship was going to blow up. And uh, in fact, Begging himself was basically thrown overboard because he refused to leave. Uh, but he stopped any civil war. In fact, that's one of the decisions uh, that he's most proud of in his life, stopping that civil war. Would Ben Gurion have gone on? I think yes, because by that time, uh, almost a dozen uh, Irgunas had been killed at Tel Aviv. Uh, there was uh, three who were killed uh, up at um, Netanya, the area of Netanya on the beach. So he was very determined because Ben Gurion had viewed Jabotinsky before as, as a Hitler type of a character. He later, even in the 1950s, called even in the early 60s, he called Begin a Hitlerite politician. And so the animosity, the hostility was there. And I believe that it was lucky that Begin uh, restrained his forces at that time. Well, well, I mean, we know because it had already been going on for a while that the Haganah had even given up Irgunis and Lehi people to the British and the infamous Sasson. So the fact that, you know, Ben-Gurion didn't have the compunction, perhaps, that we would have liked him to have um, on shooting his political rivals. I mean, that's well that's well documented. And uh, it just, you know, the, the state then takes a certain turn and they all combine all the different uh, pre-military, pre-IDF, let's say. Um, although from speaking, I interviewed a few years ago um, Eliezer Ben Yehuda the grandson of the man who's given the most credit for really rejuvenating the Hebrew language and the dictionary, et cetera. Um, and he, he and a lot of his family ended up leaving Israel. And he and others over the years have told me that the people who had, who were associated with the Irgun, who were associated with the Lehi, found many doors shut to them in the early decades of the state because of their previous political affiliations. And and the state is kind of born in a certain way with certain people at its helm and certain people making the decisions and certain people writing the history books, which is one of the reasons that I really wanted to have this evening's webinar, because many of us, despite the fact that we look for information in different places, um, we're given a certain direction of history and, and of how this magnificent country was born and who led it initially. And um, I, I think perhaps it's time maybe now to kind of give Credit where, where credit is due to some of the people who um, the underpinnings of their ideology. I mean, you know, if we talk about forget the current political situation and who's in control and who isn't, if the country is really leaning more to the right and the Likud as a party and has the scion of SCION of Jabotinsky's ideology would be the party that got, gets the most votes then isn't there some kind of irony here that after all these years um, and despite what the founding fathers, the direction that they put the country through, um, we're now at the point that Jabotinsky wrote about so long ago? There is a book by Avi Schlein, a uh, not favorable to Israel professor, former Israeli living in England uh, called The Iron Wall. And in it, he basically says that Ben-Gurion uh, applied and fulfilled Jabotinsky's political thinking. Uh, and that, of course, is not because he believed in Jabotinsky, but simply because the reality on the ground, whether it was the Arabs, whether it was uh, Great Britain, 
uh, and other powers that Israel had to deal with all through the 50s and 60s, Jabotinsky was more cognizant and more understanding of the political framework and, 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 and the boundaries in which we could or could not operate and analyzed the problems that we had much better than Ben-Gurion and others. They were good for settling the land, for setting up the Histadrut, which of course dominated Israel in the 50s and, and the 60s. The, union. Uh, mm -hmm. the trade union. Uh, in fact, uh, as you mentioned, some people who weren't even in the Irgun left Israel because they couldn't make money because everything had to be given over in percentages to the Histadrut. People, investors from abroad found themselves embroiled in huge bureaucratic red tape because everything had to go through the Histadrut, which is the, the vehicle from a party's hegemony in yeah. ruling Israel. Uh, but uh, the, the outlook of Jabotinsky, the understanding of the problems, the definition of how we could possibly solve them, I think was much more on the mark than many, many other people. He might not have been the politician that Ben-Gurion or even Weitzman was in terms of playing off one side against the other or gaining votes in Zionist Congresses. Or, or, or raising money in order to have a proper political organization. But he was mostly on the mark on many, many issues. I'll give you one uh, which has nothing uh, to do with what probably people are thinking about when we're talking. He tried to ban strikes during the uh, 30s because it was debilitating to Jewish economic structure simply because the socialists viewed everything in terms of class struggle. And Jabotinsky said, no, we're not two classes. We're the same people. We just have a difference of economics. Uh, so we should have national arbitration. Okay? I think the national arbitration is a very good idea. You go to court for everything else in the world, why not go to court in order to settle the difference between the employees and the employers? Uh, and, uh, but that was against their socialist ideology and so he was pilloried and put outside the camp for being a bourgeoisie enemy of the class struggle of socialist Zionists. You know, um, it's, always, it's always been interesting that of all the people, you know, Menachem Begin, this little Polish Jew with this ideology, attracted many of the Mizrahi Jews to him. You know, of course, in the, in the 1950s, their world throws out, and I'm sure all my listeners know this, you know, throws out virtually all their Jews, um, basically doubling Israel's population in just a few years and, and also making Israel not a white country for those who would like to put us in that corner of rich and white, which is the worst thing you can be these days, apparently. So, um, but why, you know, the Likud then um, attracts many of the Mizrahim as opposed to the Ashkenazim, which we could say were still, and again, things have changed since then, more to the left. Um, do you think that that was also because of Jabotinsky and of course Begin's understanding, and I would say even appreciation for Middle Easterners, um, love of land, love of traditions. I'm talking here about Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Um, something which the socialists, because that becomes their religion to a great degree, 
didn't connect to. Is that an explanation for, for how the Likud becomes really somewhat of a, a Mizrahi party to a great degree? It's a good deal of the explanation. Uh, I was a student here in 1966, 67 on a Zionist youth leadership course. And in those days, uh, the Mapai government was undergoing a lot of criticism, especially its economic programs. We had what was called the Mitun, or the uh, slowing down of the economy. And uh, one of the jokes was the last person to leave Ben Gurion Airport, please turn off the light. One of the other jokes, though, in black humor, and I warn my audience and you, was that one of the jokes was that a bomb had gone off at a cabinet meeting of Israel's government, uh, but the newspaper headline blared, luckily, no Jew, uh, no Israeli was killed. Hmm. In other words, they were old Europeans, which was a reflection, of course, what you say on the Mizrahi, on the Orientals, who viewed the entire leadership of the government, of the Knesset, of the Histadrut, of many of the political parties as, if I can turn a phrase against you, white Ashkenazi. And going through the Mabarot, the uh, transit camps for the immigrants. And all this negativity simply played into the hands of Begin and Kirut, on the one hand. On the other hand, something that you did say was correct. Begin could put a keep. <laughs> At least one thing you said. Was okay. okay, Begin could put easily put on a kippah because that's he always had one in his pocket, and he would say "Ruch Hashem, thank God," uh, and he could uh, he could participate in a wedding and, and and quote Tanakh a lot better than many of the other politicians. And yes, as you say, it endeared him both politically and culturally, and in culture I also include religion to second Israel as the name used to be done. And in a protest vote and an identification vote, Shavut continued to grow over the late 50s and into the 60s until 1973, 1977, when finally they turned the corner, shall we say, and were able to garner the plurality of votes in the Knesset that would let Begin lead a coalition government from 1977 on. So what some of the listeners may not know is that you yourself ran for the Knesset um, in the Tria party way back when. Can you talk a, a little bit about that? And was the, uh, was the ideology of that party close to revisionist ideology? Or, or we'd already moved past that because we were post-67 and there was Gush Emunim, and there was, you know, the, the whole issue that's still maybe one of the major issues, of course, Judea and Samaria. Obviously, that's also why when Israel Fund exists, because there's still that disparity uh, in the treatment of the Jews of Judea and Samaria versus the other parts of Israel. So can you just give us a brief little look into, into your foray or attempted foray into politics and what you think that would have brought to the, to the Knesset? Well, Despite the fact that many people know Israel's politics and political parties to be very fractious, very splitting, no. <laughs> and very divisive organizationally, uh, nevertheless, there always is an element of, of uh, continuity and, and looking back and say, I will not leave my party. Uh, you know, 
I will not leave my leader, uh, etc. And and uh, this was very much the case until uh, the 1977-79 negotiations and eventual peace treaty with uh, with, uh, Egypt. with Egypt. And here you had a unique uh, constellation in which you had both veteran revisionists, shall we call them, Cheirut uh, members, members of socialist parties that believed in a strong def proactive defense attitude and a love of the land, and elements from the old national religious party, the Maftal, who began to say this whole thing is all wrong. It's yielding up land. It's yielding up economic and oil. It's leading up to, it'll weaken us uh, in terms of how we deal with the Arabs of Judea and Samaria. They did not accept Begin's basic interpretation that first, let us take Egypt out of the, out of the uh, arena and put Circle it on. Of enemies. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that way we'll be able to deal much better with the Arabs of Judea and Samaria. Um, Shmuel Katz, one of my mentors, uh, who I think you and I also shared some visits with at time way back when, uh, he, for example, was very much against Begin, would not go with Tahir. He still felt uh, uh, an inability to, to leave because he said, when things go wrong, I want to be there in, in, in the good in order to uh, be able to uh, uh, take over or be part of a, um, uh, shall we say, replacement of, of the leadership that believed in, in, in the peace treaty with Egypt. Don't forget, about one third of the Likud Knesset faction uh, abstained on the vote, including Yitzhak Shamir, including Moshe, uh, Misha Aaron's. Uh, so it wasn't an easy thing. Uh, but I was very much uh, with, uh, with Gula Cohen at the time. I felt she was right. And I, I thought the new constellation of, of uh, Yuval Neman, a complete atheist and a scientist, Hanan uh, Porat from the Mafdal, a very charismatic uh, character, uh, and the old elements of uh, Etzel and Lechi and, and the hardcore uh, Likud or Cheirut people was the new thing to do. Uh, not too many people in Israel's voting uh, populace uh, agreed with us. And, the, and by 1992 elections, Tahir simply folded up. It, it didn't cross the threshold. Uh, there are still elements of that today, uh, but it was an experience, as you say. Uh, I did not get into Knesset, but I did work there for almost a dozen years as Gula Cohen's assistant. It's a tough place to be. Uh, but uh, I did gain not only outside but inside information about how Israel's political uh, process works. It does work for all the criticisms and all the, as you say, fractiousness. And uh, there was quite a zoo today when it came to Shikli and all this great stuff that was going on. Um, it's fun. It's, it's fun to be a journalist in this country. You're never mm -hmm. at a loss for something to report on. So just getting back, though, to... to to today's Likud, where would you say that they're following or have returned to maybe um, some of Jabotinsky's ways? Not necessarily political ideology, but as you mentioned, he, he was very broad. He didn't just have one, you know, in terms of economic policy. Um, you think he would have pr approved of 
the privatization in Israel, the fact that we've really moved very much away. The kibbutzim, there's still a few kibbutzim that are still kibbutzim, although ironically, the kibbutzim that are still kibbutzim are the ones that are wealthy because it's like a, a closed family company. Why would they want to let anyone else in and have shares? So the, um, the kibbutzim that still go by that socialist ideology tends to tend to be the ones that have millions of dollars in the bank. I don't know if that was initially where they were going, but but what do you think he would have felt in terms of you know how Israel had startup nation and and all of what we're seeing around us, which has really put Israel very much on, on the global map. I'm not even talking about you know being a superpower when it comes to water, and of course the, you know the IDF. Do do you see that he would have? This is something that he thought was important. Obviously the Iron Wall and the importance of the the military strength he did. But how about how about the rest of it? Um, which really could symbolize is even though I would say, you know, a lot of Israelis are there, not just Likud Nikim. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, I'll try to answer by saying that of all the Zionist father figures of the pre-state era, the one most quoted by the center and the left happens to be Jabotinsky because they finally discovered that he actually was a liberal Democrat. And he had very good social welfare, economic uh, um, designs and plans for Israel. Uh, he had this famous uh, five memi, the Hebrew letter mem, uh, which he termed uh, five basic issues which every citizen must have. It's clothing, it's education, it's, it's, it's uh, health care, oh. it's housing. Uh, and uh, one other which skips, skips my mind right now. Being security, no? Safety? Uh, how, well, we'll, uh, we'll figure it out by the end of the mm -hmm. day, my answer. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and they love that because it, it fits in with their socialist background, of course. He insisted they would come through bourgeoisie uh, investment, economics, uh, and, 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 and not being kibbutzim and, and not separating yourself from the people as, as, as you sort of intimated there, the closed family situation. Uh, and so he is very much uh, accepted now and spoken about much more, <laughs> a zillion times more than he was at that time. Uh, whether or not the people in the Likud, or shall we say the national camp, to be fair to other people, uh, do they know all that they have to know about Jabotinsky? Well, one of the topics we discussed much earlier in this in this session, Eve, on the Arabs, uh, I don't think many people who are uh, in the Smutrich or Ben Gavir camp, or let's say put it in the Ben Gavir camp for sure, uh, would tolerate Jabotinsky's positive outlook on making peace with the Arabs. Uh, or treating them as equal citizens. I don't think that would sit well, but that was, that was him. Uh, we, can't, we can't say what he wasn't. Uh, and uh, he, his, his willingness to be harsh and rigid on principles, and yet trying to find a way to, uh, not exactly compromise, but to facilitate that everybody should have the best uh, feeling about the end of the negotiations is, is lacking in Israeli society today, not only between us and Arabs, but I think between Jews and Jews on, on too many issues that we don't understand 
what is at, uh, at stake and, and, and why the national idea uh, overrides uh, many of the uh, sectionality of what Israel is all about today. And it's, and it's cultural and sometimes uh, other divisiveness. This is one thing area which Likud people could learn more about and probably get a better uh, voting record by, by reaching out to many more sections of the population. Uh, but uh, whether or not Jabotinsky would be satisfied with today's uh, political scene, would he change things? Definitely he would. Would he understand what's going on today? Uh, as, as, as you intimated, I'm, I'm old enough to know the difference between what was 50 years ago and what is today. And there's a huge difference, both in attitude, both in approach to many issues. Uh, and I'm not sure whether today is better than yesterday. Well, I'm, I'm sure, for example, like the Abraham Accords would have been something that he would have approved of. It's hard to imagine anybody not approving them of them, even though there are. But the, the big literal elephant in the room right now, of course, is the Israeli Arabs. Um, just today, there are, there are like gang wars in Rahat, in the Negev, um, completely out of control. And of course, Israeli police are being asked to come in to stop the violence, the internecine Arab violence. Um, and of course, it's not just internecine Arab violence. Of course, it's been turned against many Israelis, in the, especially in the past few weeks, but not only last year in Lod and in Ramla, where the Arabs that Jabotinsky had hoped would be um, a, a respected ethnic minority, understand that they're living in a Jewish state, they can do their own thing, but they're not going to control the state, don't seem to have internalized that message. Um, where, I mean, where do you think, I mean, this is more of a, it's not even asking what Jabotinsky would do. I mean, where do you think um, that we can, where you personally, with all your, with all your savvy and with all your experience and with working with so many different politicians over the years, and do you have any thoughts about how we can possibly get out of this mess right now? Uh, how to get out of the mess, I'm not quite sure. I do know that one of the uh, issues that he dealt with in several of his uh, articles, not only the Iron Wall, but a few others that dealt with the Arab situation, um, he, he tried to impress the need that not everybody can be a majority everywhere. And some people have to accept the fact that they're going to be a minority. And what he said was uh, that the Jews, unfortunately, are a minority everywhere. And that's why we want our own state. The Arabs have a lot of states. They'll have to accept that in one state in this world, in the Arab sphere of influence, shall we call it, whether it's the Middle East or whatever you want to call it, in one small state, they're going to have to be the minority. That doesn't mean they're going to have to be suppressed. It doesn't mean they have to lose rights. It doesn't mean that they can't have religious freedom or cultural freedom or anything like that. It means that the country is Jewish. The flag has a Jewish star in it. Uh, Saturday, Shabbat is the national holiday during the week. It doesn't mean that they can't celebrate Ramadan. It doesn't mean they can't go up on the Temple Mount and pray. But, for example, Jews should also have the right to pray because it happens to be also a Jewish holy site, and you could separate it by physicality or by time-wise, and everybody can get along. But if you're not going to accept that, obviously there are going to be problems. And so are we doing enough in our educational system 
to make sure that Arabs are part of, of the Israeli society in a larger sense? Uh, should we accept the fact that they themselves segregate themselves and we're not apartheiding them, if I could use that noun as a verb, but it's their uh, preference? I mean, how many Jews live in Arab villages? Very, very few. Uh, you probably know better than I am when you, we go into our village, how many Jews live there. It, 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 Israel cannot be the perfect society because there is no perfect society anyway. So people from America and, and Europe come along and berate us and tell us what to do. They don't look in their own backyards and they don't yeah. accept the, the possibility that not everything is perfect or can be perfect and you have to make the best of it. The best of it means that there is a Jewish state. That is sine qua non. And therefore, that's going back to Jabotinsky because he was the one who put it out there in front, right? We, Zionism is, is just, Zionism is moral, not only uh, in a subjective sense, but in an objective sense because that's the reality of the world today. And mm -hmm. too many people are telling Israel today whether it's how to deal with its Arabs, whether it's how to deal with its economy, how to deal with its environment, as if they're the bosses, they know better, and nothing is wrong with their own societies. Uh, and so yeah. uh, that's another message I think that Jabotinsky has for those who uh, can uh, open up uh, Google and begin to look for articles by him and on him uh, and be a little bit more uh, knowledgeable, not only of Jabotinsky, but of how he approached problems and how he tried to suggest solutions and answers to the problems. I think learning more about Jabotinsky to a great degree makes you appreciate the man more because we have all been subject to many of the canards against him and many of the, again, the racist and that, and it's time to really put that to bed once and for all um, and, and really appreciate the man and some of the, the farsightedness that he had that, that we could have used today. But since you, before we go to, there's some questions on the chat, since you brought it up um, about the Temple Mount. So what many of the viewers probably don't know is that you were going up on the Temple Mount long before it was fashionable. And uh, with all that it's been in the headlines in the, in the last few days, Jews, more Jews are going up every day than, than ever before. Um, and with all the difficulties and the attacks and everything that's happened, and that to a great degree is due to your perseverance. And, and, uh, and I think it's an example of a few people being able to change what was seen as an, an inviolable status quo. Can you just give us a couple of words on that and how you see, you know, and, and it's been, I mean, you've probably been up there more than anybody. Is that possible? Have you lost count of how many times you've been up on the Temple Mount? I don't think I've been up as much as some of the more young uh, youngsters nowadays who go up almost every single day. In my time, and we're talking about 52 years ago, it was very difficult to get up there at all. It was very difficult to identify as a Jew. Uh, uh, Any time we tried to gather for a prayer or anything else, uh, we were taken down off the mount uh, immediately. Of, uh, in 1971, I think it was Shiva Sabatamuz, the 17th, the fast day of 17th of Tammuz, I was picked up in front of Al-Aqsa and four officers carried me all the way to the gate and threw me out. 
I was the closest I came to starring as an actor in a Western in a barroom brawl. Uh, but uh, in those days, uh, it was much different. First of all, we had nobody. We had maybe 50 people. We had no rabbis. We had no press. We had no academics who did research. And uh, oddly enough, if I had to put my finger on one issue or one flashpoint, if I could use that word, it was when the Temple Mount was closed for three years during the Second Intifada from 2000 to 2003. And all of a sudden, began to become clear to many religious people that we could literally lose the Temple Mount. It would be the status quo would turn into something that the Temple Mount is off limits completely. People don't, I don't think too many people remember that period because of the success that we have today of people actually praying up there, walking around uh, uh, in the thousands. I mean, it, it, during Pesach week, it was uh, almost 3,000 or so, some, some, I can't even remember the number, yeah. something like that during the week. And, and it was a short week also. So, um, um, in those days, we had no political backing, not too many members of Knesset until the 1980s. Uh, we had no members of Knesset who would identify with us. So it was very lonely. It was very uh, much in the wilderness. Uh, and then I appreciated the criticism against Jabotinsky, if I can bring him in, as being an extremist. A fanatic, you know, and I, I'm thinking to myself, I think that we should have rights on the Temple Mount. I'm not rebuilding the, the temple immediately. I'm not making any sacrifices. I'm simply honoring, respecting. In fact, I'm trying to save archaeological remnants on the Temple Mount from destruction. Uh, so there's also a secular aspect, if I could say it that way. But it wasn't accepted at the time. And, and you're right, the, the big difference today that many people in the last few years looking at it cannot uh, fathom uh, what it was like to be a little bit in the minority uh, a couple of years ago, a couple of decades mm -hmm. ago. It was more than a little minority. You, you really, you changed very much the reality of uh, Jews being able to go up on the Temple Mount. And, you know, whether we talked about Nachshon right last week, who jumps into the, as the Red Sea is splitting, and it very often takes one or two people saying, I... I'm not going to accept this, and this isn't just, and this isn't right. And uh, I just wanted to mention that because I'm not, as a matter of fact, I'm sure that most people don't know um, the impact that you have had on, on the ability. I've been up there quite a few times with you explaining to me the different things. Unfortunately, seeing the changes on the mount over the years as the walk destroys whatever it can of our heritage and builds new mosques and covers things up and desecrates other things. Um, and uh, that is an ongoing issue that's already beyond both of our pay grades. There's a couple of questions that, that came in. Um, someone thought we should do a little more bashing of, of the Haganah and of, of uh, Ben-Gurion. I think we made the point clear that people who were associated with the other groups, with the Irgun and the Lechi, did not have an easy time at the beginning years of the state and were very much punished for their beliefs. Um, and there quite a few things were done that I would say um, nobody is proud of at this point in time. Um, there are, the Stephen Gilbert asks, is not a belief that Arabs with their defining characteristics of Islam and tribal hierarchy 
will accept minority status, let alone in a Jewish state, a pipe dream best disposed of, not disclosed of. Islam has utter and complete contempt for Judaism. Do you think that's true, that Islam has complete contempt for Judaism? Islam is a political body or Islam is a religion? Two well, things. Well, anybody who, who Googles anti-Semitism in Islam can come up with a lot of um, unfortunate uh, statements, both in the Quran and, and what they call the mm-hmm. Hadith, the, the oral law, if we make it Your version way. of the Mishnah, yeah. But, but on the other hand, uh, just like Judaism, I think is vastly different 2,000 years later in terms of, uh, uh, I'm not uh, liberal with a small L or a little bit more encompassing. Uh, it also depends on the person. Uh, mm-hmm. And therefore, I think I know a lot of Muslims who uh, do not want to be identified as Islamists, if I can use that term, uh, being uh, 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 fundamentalist about their Islam. I think there is a possibility of having change. Uh, the proof is one of the things you mentioned earlier was the Abrahamic Accords. Right. In the meantime, we have good relations, political, economic, and otherwise, with Muslim states, Muslim mm-hmm. Arab states. Without Muslims, right. Right. So uh, the possibility exists. Do mm-hmm. we, does that mean we uh, let down our defenses? No. Does it mean we have to be loathed into some sort of uh, uh, belief that everything, we're now in paradise? Uh, mm-hmm. No, we don't have, you know, we shouldn't do that. So uh, I'm not going to take that extreme. I will apply it to a great extent to what is called the so-called Palestinian people, uh, who are not Palestinian people, but they're Arabs who are living in a historic area that was region that was once known as Palestine has nothing to do with a state or a country, Uh, there we have a very big problem. Because in order to fight Zionism, which is a just and historically correct movement, they have to embellish and sharpen their own identity, which includes a very fanatic approach on Islam. And one example to link up with the last issue we talked about, we have Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian National Authority, telling me and you, right, that Jews defile the Temple Mount with their feet, okay, mm-hmm. uh, which is not true. The Temple Mount is an open area. I will not walk into a mosque with shoes on, okay? I will honor the, and respect the place if I, have, if I go into it. But the Temple Mount is also an open compound with a lot of free area to walk around in, and it's not a mosque. Right. Plenty of room for everyone if that was if that was the intention. But one of the other questions here is concerned about the divisions within Israeli society. And it's a um, it's a it's a reasonable concern because we have seen in other times of our history when we're so busy quibbling with each other, the enemies around us take advantage. It's it's an old way. It's this is nothing new. Um, are you concerned on that level? Do you think it's that bad? Um, here in Israel, that it that it is weakening us to an existential uh, point. Uh, what bothers me is not so much the Israeli scene per se, but in positions that local Israelis take that are adopted or are even adapted 
by critical anti-Zionists, Jewish and otherwise, from outside. Uh, Peace Now used to be an Israeli organization. I don't see it that way anymore. It's 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 Peter Beinart and and JVP and and Peace Now and B'Tselem, and it's a whole different makeup, in my opinion, in my mm-hmm. perception of what's going on. This whole NGO um, uh, empire that the EU and church groups and to a certain extent the United States United States supports financially has turned many of the local Israeli left-wing anti-occupation groups into foreign agents. They wouldn't exist without this money. They don't have the support of these Israeli society enough to be a, a voice, but they have their own echo chamber with the media, uh, uh, with being uh, uh, brought to the United Nations or to given prizes like Gidon Levy or other journalists uh, uh, propped up by all sorts of false uh, production uh, uh, enterprises. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the division is not between Israelis, it's between a foreign idea that was settled in 1948 when the state was established. That it was the end, should have been the end of Satmer, it should have been the end of binationalism, it should have been the end of the anti Zionists in the American Council for Judaism, etc. Uh, but uh, it, uh, it, it continues, and that's the main division of Israeli society that really bothers me more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And I, I think just to, to end, and, and if you want to give out your email address or some way that people could contact with you, I know that you'd like to give out suggestions for reading for people, for really to understand the history. Um, do you want to do that now before I forget? Well, you can find me on Twitter, Why Maydad. You can find me also at Facebook, Yisrael Maydad. And you can leave off messages there. Uh, that's probably the best way. Um, and, they can uh, also ask me. <laughs> and you also ask Eve. And okay. uh, I'm open uh, to, to help out, to advise, and to suggest, and to recommend. Uh, that's okay. uh, one of my uh, mentoring abilities. All right. Yes, it most certainly is. And I think that really to end with what you said and, and what Jabotinsky said, we need to understand and internalize the justice, the justice of our cause. Um, that is how the enemies, both within and without, try and tear us down by having us doubt who we are. Um, and, uh, and we cannot let them do that. But in order to really understand, we also have to know the history, know the situation, and, and, and there's a question here about, you know, is Israel going to survive the next 10 years? Personally, I have absolutely no doubt. I'm more concerned about other countries in the world than I am about Israel. Um, I really think that we'll be okay, but uh, we can be more than okay. And, uh, but we really have to understand what we're doing here and keep holding our hands out in peace. But also, as Jabotinsky said, not let go of that iron wall and make sure that it's not breached and that we can stay safe and secure and build that kind of society, which will be wonderful to all of its citizens um, within that iron wall. So Yisrael Dad, thank you so much for sharing with us some of your experiences. Of course, your, um, your deep knowledge 
of Jabotinsky and the Revisionist Movement and uh, your contributions that you've made throughout the years to many, many groups and people that have come through um, the Menachem Begin Center, which by the way, if you haven't been to the next time you're in Jerusalem, you really should go. It is, it is a very, very special place with a lot of different programming that they run and, uh, and really a, you know, a, nice, a, nice, uh, a nice memorial to, uh, to, a very, to a very great man. So um, with that, I bid everyone adieu. We, would, we will hopefully have another webinar in another month. You can go on the One Israel Fund website if you missed any of our webinars, also virtual tours that we've been putting out about the different communities. One just came out last week about Nokdim in Eastern Gush Etzion. As I said, we'll re be restarting the physical tours. I'm gonna to be in the States. I'll be in Miami, speaking in a synagogue in Bell Harbor this Shabbat, if any of you are in that area, I would love to see you. And in Englewood, New Jersey, the following Shabbat. And I'm going to be restarting that also. And uh, we'd love you to join us in the important work that we are doing to secure the communities, specifically in Judea and Samaria, and hence all of Israel, because really, we are all in this together. Thank you so much, Israel Maydad. Thank you all to those who joined us. Eve Harrow, thank you to Shauna for the, being the gal behind the scenes. Eve Harrow of One Israel Fund. Take care, everybody, and goodbye for now. The Land of Israel Network is your connection to Israel and the Jewish world. Listen to our show hosts, Ari Abramowitz, Jeremy Gimpel, Eve Harrow, Josh Haston, Mike Foyer, Yishai Fleischer, and more. Keeping you up to date on news, politics, and spirituality. That's the Land of Israel Network at thelandofisrael.com. Broadcasting the truth and beauty of Israel to the world.